1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: What lies beneath? It's an age-old mystery trying to know and understand all that exists below the ocean waves that cover more than 70% of the planet. What is known is that the deep, dark recesses of the seas store a lot of carbon, And that's helped keep Earth from warming more than it already has. So no wonder the worry that climate change may upset that balance. And it's a worry mainly because scientists don't know nearly enough about just what's going on down there. Now there are efforts to come together as a global team to research, share data, and figure out the best way to understand how to protect the watery depths that are protecting the land above. Also, a different take on the debate over just transition or sustainable jobs or whatever it's called. Not from politicians, but from those who helped design an alternative approach and called it the end of this world. It's as provocative as it sounds. We'll also check in on the big response to last week's conversation about teaching climate change at universities. And we're gonna talk pond hockey. Lace up your skates and let's go. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. We talk a lot about carbon on this show, and often it's about carbon dioxide emissions in our atmosphere. But a really big chunk of those emissions are absorbed by the world's oceans. In fact, it's estimated that one-quarter to one-third of human-made CO2 that goes into the atmosphere actually ends up under sea, and some oceans absorb carbon better than others. There's the North Atlantic Ocean off Canada's east coast, for example, and within that, the Labrador Sea. But in this watery world, there are way more questions than answers. And the questions are taking on more urgency as our carbon dioxide emissions continue to climb. Now, there's an international effort underway to understand all of this. CBC producer Lindsay Bird headed out onto the water with the people involved in one project based in Newfoundland. And Lindsay joins me now from Corner Brook, Newfoundland. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Laura. So, tell me about this expedition.
3: Well, let me take you a world away from our current cold Canadian winter reality. And back to a frankly glorious July day, out on a fishing boat, heading out right into the middle of Trinity Bay, which is about 90 minutes outside St. John's here in Newfoundland.
4: Oh, the a whale Mickey there. Okay, it doesn't suck to be on the water, for sure.
3: Yet we saw tons of whales, a few dolphins. It was pretty awesome. And all of this awesome wildlife was easy to spot because the water was so dead calm. It is so rare to have a day without wind in coastal Newfoundland, and that's actually key here. This expedition I went out on was totally weather-dependent. All right,
2: I'm officially jealous. What were you doing?
3: Well, uh, we were out on the water to retrieve a kind of underwater drone, and we could only do so if the breeze was blowing at 15 kilometers an hour or less. That doesn't happen too often along the coast of this part of the world, as I said, and this mission had actually been delayed a few times already. But on this July day, it was finally going ahead, and it was all to recover this automated vehicle. It's called a glider. It's about a meter and a half long, and it looks like a bright yellow airplane that flies underwater and has its round nose, kind of like a torpedo. A glider's movements are all controlled remotely. This one was piloted by Nikolai von Brodakowski, and he is the manager of glider operations at Memorial University in St. John's
4: and so this is this glider it's called Megaloo after the whale that was like at the coast um of new england anyway um we give those gliders names they're usually something cute like Megaloo is a cute name or sunfish um barnacle so yeah it's right now just out here so we are in heart's content and the glider is over there yeah so it's it's gonna come to the surface in like 20 minutes and uh we're gonna pick it up
3: so, yeah, we left Heart's Content, which is a real place and is really fitting for the name. It's a very beautiful part of the world, Laura. And out onto Trinity Bay aboard the Bell of the Bay, this fishing boat, to go get it. And the boat belongs to two fishermen from Heart's Content, Kyle and Doug Piercy. They have been lending their boat out to Nikolai and other glider researchers for years. And I will say that Doug Piercy knows his way around hauling in a glider or two. Thank you. Is that heavy to pull up?
5: not the way it is to come right? we have got those legs on. job to get in over the gunnel there.
3: So Doug and Nikolai got it out over the gunnels here. Uh, and the second that this glider, Migaloo, was out of the water, Nikolai was right there checking all over it really carefully. Basically because Migaloo was equipped with this sort of like a little backpack strapped to it that held some pretty special scientific equipment.
4: So yeah, this is the uh, pH sensor right there that the whole fuss is about.
3: This pH sensor measures acidity in the water. You know, that's, that's one way to understand how much carbon is in the water. Carbon makes seawater more acidic, therefore changing the pH. And this was the sensor's first test out in the ocean. Making it back to the boat intact was the first milestone in this year-long mission that everyone on board the boat calls ACOP. That stands for Atlantic Carbon Observatory Pilot Program.
2: All right. So, can you break down exactly what the pilot program is trying to do?
3: Well, Nikolai calls it a mini, mini experiment. You know, this observatory is basically a place to collect and pool data all around ocean carbon, in this case, using sensors on gliders to get that data. Here's the lead researcher for this whole mission, Brad DeYoung, summing it all up.
1: So, this is really trying to kind of get better at making measurements of carbon in the ocean. Carbon in the ocean is, is weirdly complicated. Carbonate chemistry is tied to dissolved carbon. It's dissolved to inor- tied to inorganic carbon, to organic carbon, and there's all sorts of chemical and biogeochemical pathways. And measuring it uh, just turns out to be harder than it should be. <laughs> We'd like it to be much easier. And so temperature is easy to measure. It's both easy and cheap. But sensors to measure various aspects of carbon are not so easy to build, not so reliable, and just not as well-developed. So the Carbon Observatory is basically a platform where we can test and and actually use the instruments.
3: That's Brad DeYoung. He's the lead researcher on the Atlantic Carbon Observatory pilot program. He's also a physical oceanographer and professor emeritus with Memorial University. So
2: so he says this is all about getting better at making carbon measurements in the ocean, but why is
3: that important? Well, Laura, basically there's way more we don't know about carbon in the ocean than what we do know. If we compare it to carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, you know, we can measure that accurately in the parts per million, we have a good recent scientific history of emissions, and we can make predictions about what's going to happen in the atmosphere and try to adapt or better yet mitigate. But that really doesn't exist when it comes to carbon in the ocean. Scientists understand the basic ways the ocean is a carbon sink. You know how it's taken out of the atmosphere and sequestered way down underwater in the depths. But there is no fulsome database of exact numbers to say how much carbon has been absorbed, at what rate, and when that carbon may eventually be released back to the atmosphere. And scientists don't know where the limit to carbon ocean take up might be you know, that threshold when the ocean is no longer a carbon sink for what we're pumping into the atmosphere. The ocean is a great carbon sink, but all of that carbon is also having big effects under the water. I'm sure your listeners to the show have probably heard about ocean acidification. That impacts so many forms of sea life, from microorganisms to shellfish. So that is another huge reason scientists want to quantify ocean carbon.
2: Now, this sounds like a pretty big, pressing scientific question, no matter where you live in the world. How significant is this pilot program in Newfoundland when it comes to the bigger picture of figuring out ocean carbon?
3: Well, it's important, I think, because of both proximity and technology here. The Atlantic Carbon Observatory pilot program, I mean, it's physically well-situated for this kind of research. Us here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we are in the North Atlantic, And we know scientifically that the North Atlantic is a vital piece of the global carbon sink. And this pilot program is also physically relatively really close to one part of the North Atlantic that stands out when it comes to taking up carbon. I'm talking here about the Labrador Sea, you know, this remote stretch of water that goes between Labrador and Greenland.
2: Okay, this makes me really curious, but why would the Labrador Sea be such an effective carbon sink?
3: Well, Laura, it's really cold. It's really deep. And in the winter, it is really stormy. These are all physical traits that scientists know increase carbon intake. The Labrador Sea definitely attracts a lot of scientific attention around this. There are ships that visit this area and do research. And they do produce some really great measurements, including data around carbon. But there are drawbacks to using those ships. You know, you get data, but only from one spot in the ocean where you are on that ship and and only at one point in time. And it's super expensive to get a berth on a research ship. And there's a chronic shortage of these research ships in Canada. And when the ships do go out, they tend to go in summertime because in the winter, when the carbon intake is higher, it is... Not a nice place to be, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Brad de Young can paint us a really good picture of the misery of being on the Labrador Sea in wintertime when he says the average wave height can be 15 to 20 meters high.
1: The average wave height means every few hours there's going to be a wave of two or three times that size. And ships can survive those, many of them, but they don't do any work. You, nobody can deploy instruments. The ship is just steaming away, trying to stay afloat, and so A, nobody wants to go there because it's no fun, but B, nobody wants to go there because you can't actually on a ship get much useful work done. There was a famous cruise quite a few years ago, the Baffin went into the Labrador Sea in the winter, and in 65 days at sea, they got one day of useful work. (laughs) That's not a very good way to get work done.
2: Something about the way he's talking makes me think they spent the rest of their days being pretty seasick. I can imagine it would have been really hard to get any work done.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I wonder how much gravel that that crew went through. But but this is kind of where underwater gliders come in super handy for collecting the sort of data the scientists are looking for.
1: Boats suffer from the waves and the freezing ice and all that. But gliders are, spend most of their time underwater. We talk to the gliders through basically a satellite cell phone, and most of the time it's really good. Because they just stick their tail out of the water, and we talk to them through an antenna in the tail.
3: So as Brad says their gliders have some good things going for them with this ability to roam around the Labrador Sea through raging winter storms and be basically okay. He says one goal for this pilot program would be to get his gliders to take off from Newfoundland and and fly underwater into the Labrador Sea once these carbon-related sensors are fine-tuned. You know, go out and get that data that can contribute to filling in even a few of these blanks the global scientific community has around ocean carbon. Because I should say this whole push around understanding ocean carbon is truly an international one, as is pushing for a permanent North Atlantic Carbon Observatory. So the Atlantic Carbon Observatory pilot program here is just one piece of the puzzle being done in our part of the globe. But I mean, Laura, isn't that kind of how the whole picture gets filled in? We go from not knowing very much to slotting in one puzzle piece at a time, and then we can step back and look at this whole picture of ocean carbon in a much fuller sense and gain a greater scientific understanding about it.
2: Yeah, you're right. This is part of a much larger puzzle, and we're going to talk about that bigger picture in just a minute. But thanks for telling us about the Migaloo, Lindsay.
3: You're welcome, Laura. And and before I go, I should say if listeners are kind of intrigued around Migaloo and the gliders at Memorial University, they do have a website up where you can follow in real time the movements of these gliders as they zoom around the North Atlantic Ocean on this mission and other ones. And it is actually pretty easy to use. Just ask Trinity Bay fisherman uh, Doug Piercy.
5: So they got a website up now where they're following the glider. So the wife says, you haven't got that on again on the computer, have you? I watched it as much as the boys though. Yeah. It was gone all winter for 180-something days. And then in 180-something days, I guarantee I watched it 200 times for sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it's got a pretty healthy audience, or at least a loyal one, Lindsay Bird. Thank you. My pleasure. And if you want to learn more about those gliders and follow along the next time one is deployed, the website is mungliders.com slash missions. That is M-U-N gliders, one word, dot com slash missions. Now, as you heard, Migaloo and the Atlantic Carbon Observatory pilot program are just pieces of the puzzle when it comes to understanding how the ocean stores carbon. And calls are growing for a global effort to complete the picture. Hello, I'm Anya Waite, and I'm the CEO and Scientific Director of the Ocean Frontier Institute here in Halifax. And that's a research hub that explores ocean carbon and biodiversity. The people there are also calling for more attention to climate problems beneath the waves. Anya Wait says projects like Migaloo are useful because they gather data but also because they help build expertise in ocean carbon across Canada. So it's a great, relatively small piece, but very important in the big picture to build these to the point where they can be scaled up. And when we talk about the big picture, how does it fit into the worldwide effort?
6: The worldwide effort is growing. And as co-chair of an organization called the Global Ocean Observing System, I'm also involved in bringing together the network of networks internationally. So researchers from all over the world coming together to decide what do we need to do to observe the ocean. It's a program called Ocean Observation Co-Design under the UN Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. Wow, that's a mouthful. mouthful. (laughs) It is, but basically it's a UN-driven decade of ocean action. And this group has come together as hundreds of researchers coming together to decide what needs to happen to really push things forward. And one of the key areas they've identified for action is the carbon system in the ocean.
2: So I, I wondered, how well are all of the ocean monitoring projects around the world coordinating with each other right now?
6: Not very well. I think there are really good attempts to talk. Researchers really communicate pretty well together, but nations don't. And it's nations that really invest in observation. So, for example, we've got uh, wonderful work being done in the UK, the US... Canada, France, Germany, all in the North Atlantic, but they're not pulled together at the highest level diplomatically. And so the connections we make tend to be group to group. For example, um, it's the researchers who run uh, the major mooring array in the north part of the North Atlantic have just contacted me to say, how can we connect with our Canadian colleagues and so on. So it tends to happen organization to organization and not really at the international level where it needs to be. You mean government to government then? That's exactly right. And why is that?
2: Because it's hard.
6: And because governments have many priorities, not all of which align with this agenda.
2: Waite says Canada does a good job with ocean observation, investing in technology that goes out into the open ocean and sends data back. And there are other systems used by other nations. She says scientists need to bring all of this data together and agree to share... After all, this kind of international cooperation has happened before, just in the opposite direction.
6: We use the analogy of the International Space Station. It's not a perfect analogy, but it is in this way. So at a key point, nations came together to say, if we work together, we can create a space station that's bigger than the sum of the parts, where we share data, we share infrastructure, and we bring a value to humankind essentially and that's the kind of thinking that we need behind ocean observation otherwise we're stuck in our national silos and that's a danger with climate change and looming threat that we're not bringing the strength that we have together in the right way.
2: I I love that you bring the International Space Station up as an example but it seems to me there's a stark difference in that nobody really owns outer space and when it comes to the oceans different countries feel that they that is their territory or it, it affects them so what are the complications when you bring the space station model down to earth
6: that's exactly right i mean the problem with the ocean is that it is a distributed problem the ocean has to be observed across the whole ocean you can't have a single point So it's harder to bring that together in some ways. But in some ways, the analogy is good in the sense that the big carbon sinks are actually in the open ocean. They're what we call deep blue carbon. And that's all outside of national jurisdictions. That's off the continental shelf in the deep ocean. And that's where nations actually don't have jurisdiction, but need to come together to make sure that things are done correctly.
2: All right, so there's been quite a bit of talk here about international policy and politics, but here's why it's so important for the survival of humanity. As you've heard, the ocean absorbs about 30% of global emissions. If the ocean's ecosystem changes and starts to release that carbon, it could swamp efforts underway to get to net zero. So if we're not watching the ocean carefully, it could
6: sort of bite us from behind when we're not looking. So it's absolutely critical for humankind to save the world, really and to keep our net zero goals realistic and on target we need to know what's happening in the ocean
2: just to be clear is there any sense that, that the ocean is releasing carbon now so that's a great question the ocean is releasing carbon but
6: it's taking up more than it's releasing so there's parts of the ocean that are big sources which is where they're releasing carbon. There's parts of the ocean that are big carbon sinks, like the North Atlantic. And what we need to know globally is how the sink is changing and how the sources are changing. The sink in the North Atlantic looks like it's declining, and the the sinks globally look like they're declining. We don't know exactly how fast, and we don't know whether extreme events will cause sudden decline.
2: As we heard from Lindsay Bird in Newfoundland, some parts of the ocean absorb more than others, which is why ocean carbon is so complicated to figure out. What's more, because carbon changes ocean chemistry, monitoring helps scientists learn more about where those changes are affecting vulnerable species. And that brings us to a solution, the one Annie already alluded to, an international observation program. How would it work?
6: The first step in an international observation program is to bring nations together in a governance structure that allows them to talk to each other. So, we could just start with a conversation with nations and say, What can we do together? How can we pool our data systems? How can we deliver more from what we already have? Then, analyze what the gaps are, and then figure out which nations are ready to invest in filling those gaps and pull it together at the next level. So it starts with the international conversations and ends up ultimately with a joined-up system delivering data and information to policymakers.
2: And it's not just about government. Waite says there's a role for the private sector to play too. There is a $50 billion
6: opportunity for ocean carbon dioxide reduction, which could save the world if it's properly invested in. So there are technologies and techniques which allow the ocean to absorb more carbon than it otherwise would. And if you can do this, if you can engineer this carefully and in an ecologically sound manner, you can save the world from itself.
2: Now you've heard about carbon capture and storage on land. Well, Waite says there's similar potential in the ocean.
6: And in fact, the oceans have even more potential to store carbon because they already store more carbon and they have such a huge volume in which to store it. The controversy, of course, is that we do not want these kinds of activities to be going on in the ocean without them being carefully monitored, without them being mindfully enacted, so that the ocean doesn't take in yet another hit, right? We want to make sure that we're actually improving the ocean while we draw down carbon. And some of the technologies that are being put forward now are actually doing that. For example, some uh, there's, there's a technique called ocean alkalinity, which reduces the acid amount in the ocean and at the same time increases carbon absorption while making the pH a little bit higher, So that could actually help the ocean and allow the ocean to absorb more carbon dioxide at the same time. But we have to measure and monitor and validate very, very carefully. Otherwise, we're in big trouble.
2: Waite went to the International Climate Conference in Egypt last fall to urge nations to improve ocean research. She saw progress there, she says. Slow and incremental, but progress all the same. Negotiators reached an agreement on how to observe the changing atmosphere, land... And crucially, the ocean. When you get progress, it's because 197
6: nations have agreed on to do one thing, which is already pretty remarkable. What COP27 and other meetings do is create a framework for nations to act. So the next step is for nations to act. Nations can complain about that, that everything's very slow at the cops, but in the end, those frameworks are designed for governments to step up and say, we commit to doing something. And when they do that, that's what changes the world, not the framework behind it. The framework behind it is necessary and minimum necessary work, but then nations need to do something. So it's up to us as
2: nations to act. Anya wait, thank you so much. Thank you. And of course, we'll be watching to see whether Anya Waite's underwater vision becomes a reality. This is fascinating for me being someone who grew up beside the ocean here in Vancouver. And I have often thought that when people speak of space as being the final frontier, there's so much that we don't know about the sea that that really is the frontier to explore to me. There is so much happening in the oceans right now. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again in very short order.
5: Paper or plastic?
1: Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want
0: to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions,
2: subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. So last week we heard from Professor Donald Wright at the University of New Brunswick about the lightbulb moment that made him rethink how to teach political
5: science. About 10 years ago, a student approached me after they wrote the final exam. And as sometimes students do, they'll say, oh, thanks for the course, sir. I learned a lot. And the student said, yeah, thanks for the course, sir. But, you know, I wasn't really interested in a lot of your topics. What I'm worried about, what I think about, is the environment and the climate. And afterwards, I thought, you know, he's right.
2: Good on Donald. He started educating himself and adding lessons about the politics of climate change into his courses. And before long, he had enough material for a standalone course. Now his colleague, Heather Miller, has started another new course about climate change. Arts First Climate and the Environment will soon be mandatory for all art students at UNB. The professors think that could be a first in Canada, and they say climate education in the social sciences helps students cope with climate anxiety and understand how the humanities can be part of the solution. During our interview, Donald offered to share his curriculum with other educators, and a lot of you said yes. You want to know more? So story producer Rachel Sanders joins me now to share some of those messages. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Laura. So this has been... Quite something. Every day since the interview aired, we've been coming in and opening our computers and finding more and more messages. Let us know what people have been saying.
4: Yeah, it's just been a flood of emails. They've come from across Canada, from Victoria to Newfoundland, everywhere in between. We also had a couple from outside of Canada, one from Uganda and one from Tanzania. They're from teachers at every level, from middle school to graduate school and someone designing a course for senior citizens about climate change and just transitions. Here's one email from Julie Pinot. She teaches middle school in Kelowna. She says, I'm a grade seven science teacher, relatively new to the career, and my major in university was French and history. How I landed as a science teacher? Luck, I would say, because it just so happens that I love it. Until this year, I've spent maybe one month on climate science, but this year my students were so passionate about it that we've been studying it for the last four months. We did a design thinking project, and some came up with amazing solutions. It was very impressive, inspiring, and eye-opening for me. So Julie said our interview with Donald and Heather inspired her to develop her curriculum beyond her science class into literature, drama, career education. She knows that there's a big difference between teaching 12-year-olds and teaching university students, but she's hoping to get some ideas out of their curriculum and deepen her own understanding of climate change as well.
2: Well, that's great. I mean, it's it's not just university professors who are asking about this. There's others as well. There's There's just... So many people who are interested, right?
4: That's right. Yeah. Dozens more. All of them looking to bring more climate education into all kinds of classrooms. Peter Ford is one of them. He teaches hospitality and tourism to grades 9 through 12 in Angus, Ontario. So we called him up after he wrote to us. And here's what he had to say.
1: Every generation is is guilty of saying, you're the generation that needs to do something. But all generations need to do something. I just wish that the people in charge of our education systems just put the environment on the front burner more often. It is often in the back burner, but i I just I just hope to inspire the kids to be climate change or environmental ambassadors.
2: okay, so hospitality and tourism, that's what he teaches. it's i'm I'm sure, as with everything that we've learned about, there's something to do with climate change and that It's going to be interesting to see what what he does with that. Now, who else did we hear
4: from? Well, here's someone in another field. Susan Hillick is a professor of social work at Trent University, and she's not just teaching climate change in her own classroom. She's part of a group of academics across Canada who've been meeting regularly by Zoom to talk about climate education, and they want to make climate literacy mandatory in all post-secondary institutions.
0: I think that all institutions have to pivot to Uh, work on this issue. Students are also putting some pressure on us to adapt and to update um, our curricula to look at climate change. And we in turn, in interested faculty, are then putting some pressure on our administrations to also look at how we can best do this.
2: So I'm going to slip in a little bit of something that I heard about from a listener recently. I can't say too much because it's still not public yet, but they had inquired about actually using our program as part of, of classroom education on climate change for a rather large group of people. And I'm, I'm not sure where that's all at, but it, it just, it gives you this idea of the hunger out there for this kind of thing. Um, and now it's gone global.
4: It has, that's right. (laughs) I mentioned we heard from someone in Uganda. Well, that email came from Mark Olwini. He's a research associate professor in the Faculty of the Built Environment at Uganda Martyrs University. He told us he wants to break down the barriers in climate education.
1: My biggest hope is that it becomes mainstream. We definitely need to have it mainstreamed across different fields. That helps address a challenge that doesn't exist within silos. It has something to do with every single one of us. And by having cross-disciplinary conversations, we can have a better chance of resolving the climate crisis going forward.
2: Donald and Heather have certainly inspired a lot of people across a lot of different disciplines. And I think the response really shows just how fundamentally climate change is changing education. And Rachel, I hope you've passed all of these messages on to Donald and Heather.
4: I certainly have. Yeah, they're delighted with the response. They've also had quite a few people email them directly. And Donald's planning to get back to every single one of them. And it sounds also like he might be thinking a little bit about how to broaden their vision and find new ways to help educators in the humanities and social sciences teach about climate. Well, that
2: is amazing. And and if any of you are listening today and you didn't hear the original interview, you can just go back into last week's program, pull it up and ha- have a listen to it. And if you want to get in touch again with Donald, who's offering to share his curriculum, you can just email us earth at cbc.ca. Uh, we will pass those along. And uh, I can't wait to see what comes out of all these connections. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Laura. government promised just transition legislation before. Now, though, the conversations seem to be heating up. It's a difference in approach. They're approaching the whole thing under a framework and narrative of the so-called just transition, which is a polarizing term. It means something very specific in the international community, and it's a rapid transition off of fossil fuels. Their conversation in Ottawa with the just transition implies we're not going to need oil and gas workers because we're shutting it down, and that's the problem with approaching this as in the narrative of a
5: just transition, as opposed to attracting investment and creating jobs and being competitive.
1: I'm not a big fan of the words just transition. I actually prefer to talk about this as sustainable jobs. Um, Ultimately, what we are focused on is ensuring that we're building an economy that's going to create good jobs, well-paying jobs, and economic opportunity in every province.
2: Now, you heard Jonathan Wilkinson there, Canada's Minister of Natural Resources. And before that, you heard Sonia Savage Alberta's Minister of the Environment. Some disagreement there, and words seem to be everything. Whether you call it a just transition or sustainable jobs, the question remains, what will the future look like for oil and gas workers and for the communities that are centered around the industry? The End of This World is a new book that has some ideas about this, and two of the co-authors join me now. Angela Luc is an assistant professor in the School of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at York University in Toronto, and she's a member of the Big Stone Cree Nation. Emily Eaton is a professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Regina. Hello to you both. Hello, thanks for having us. Hi. Now, your book, it aims to broaden the thinking around what just transition means. How so, and Angela, let's start with you. That's
0: a big question to start with. But, um, you know, I think if we're going to talk about just transition, um, I would rely on where just transition came from, which was a concept that came out of the labor movement when workers and unions were seriously thinking about how they could help their workers transition um, as you know, certain industries were winding down and how this impacts communities and families um, and how to transfer people's skills to other industries once an industry has come to an end. And so when I think of just transition, I don't just think of how will a just transition impact the highest paid resource workers, because I think a lot of policies focus on those jobs, which are mostly filled by men, white men. Um, So I think for me, a just transition has to do with how are we transitioning our economy and our society away from fossil fuels, um, then taking everyone into consideration. A just transition for women, racialized workers, Indigenous people, people in precarious work, people in steady work, people who are temporary foreign
2: workers. Emily, what about you?
5: Well, I think, you know, in conversations about just transition, as Anjel is saying, the focus has often been around uh, white male fossil fuel workers. And it has meant sort of a package of labor market adjustment strategies. So we can think about the coal phase out in Alberta that included um, retirement, um, early retirement packages, EI top-ups, retraining vouchers for workers, that kind of thing. Um, But what we're really trying to do in the book is to say that if we're transitioning to post-carbon economies um, that are going to be just, it involves a whole lot more than just um, those few narrow jobs um, and those particular um, labour strategies. And so, as Angele said, you know, Canada, for example, is founded on the theft of um, Indigenous lands. And so, recognising Indigenous jurisdiction and sovereignty is a big part of that. Um, And it also means, you know, supporting... Um, all sorts of types of workers in communities um, that are fossil fuel dependent um, outside of the extractive work too. So in industries that support extractive work, so whether that's hotel and accommodation or um, service industries, all sorts of other jobs that are highly feminized um, and racialized. Well, let's talk about that Indigenous sovereignty aspect
2: a bit more. Um, When we're talking specifically about shifting away from fossil fuels, what would that look like, Angel?
0: Um, I think that would look like moving away from capitalist colonial economies and the way that we currently organize our economy. Because the people of this land, Indigenous peoples, um, you know, we had our own economies and our own societies and our way of doing things and our own laws. Um, and I think a major part of that is building on Indigenous economies of care, where you know, Indigenous understandings of reciprocity and sharing. You know, if we're going to have a just transition, which is based on um, respecting Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous inherent rights, we need to return to Indigenous understandings of our treaties 1 to 11 in Canada, which were based on peace and friendship treaties, treaties of sharing, um, treaties of, you know, respecting indigenous sovereignty
2: of the land and the waters and the territories. Emily, on that point,
5: how would that help
2: concretely in shifting away from fossil fuels?
5: when we talk about a just transition away from fossil fuels, concretely what we're talking about too is sort of stepping back Canada's jurisdiction in the process and saying, you know, Canada doesn't call all the shots anymore. They Canada recognizes that its sovereignty isn't superior to indigenous sovereignty and comes to the table in a way that is about really sharing, um, jurisdiction. So having overlapping jurisdiction, um, and managing this process in a way that really respects, um, Indigenous jurisdiction over the full entirety of Indigenous territories, which would be 100% of Canada.
2: Emily, you also write write about how we can rethink fossil fuel ownership. Now, what would it mean, for example, for these assets to be put under public ownership, to be nationalized? hmm
5: well we like to call it um, socialized in in the book, uh, but yeah we talk about two different possible pathways um, to the phase out of fossil fuels um, so one being where there's uh, more enhanced regulation that sort of regulates the industry um, you know in, a, in an orderly way on an appropriate timeline um, out of existence, or another way would be to socialize those assets and run them um, through public ownership and dual jurisdiction um, so that we can ensure that, for example, the the huge uh, legacy associated with fossil fuel infrastructure, um, the liability associated with that um, is paid for um, with the declining revenues from oil and gas so that we can redistribute the profits, the remaining profits from the industry as it declines, um, into all of the things that we want to support, whether those are carrying economy jobs or, you know, land back to Indigenous nations, all sorts of good things that we discuss in the book about sort of restoring right relationships between people and the land. Oh, you,
2: you mentioned liability there. Isn't that a risk with nationalizing those assets? Well, right
5: now the risk is they will be dumped on the public anyways. Um, and so sunsetting this industry does mean um, a huge amount of, in, of infrastructure that will be left in the ground and in need of remediation. And so it's unlikely that private companies are going to be held accountable for the full extent of their liability. So it will land on public hands, most likely anyways. And so we might as well be um, also in charge of the revenues. I I can almost. Oh, go ahead, Angel. Yes, please.
2: I think
0: I think you're asking the wrong question. I I think you're talking in very colonial um, white European terms by asking about, you you know, liabilities and risks. When colonizers came to Canada and they saw the land that was rich and full of life and resources, um, colonial capitalist powers wanted to exploit the land and take from the land. And that's not how Indigenous people traditionally had a relationship with the land. The land isn't something you take from to produce and just profit from. The land gives us life. So I think our, our economy, the way we view it, is, is backwards. We think about how can we gain and take and take and take more. We need to think about how can we give back? How can we restore the land? How can we restore our relationship with the land? Our economies are based on resources we get from the land. So to talk about liabilities and risks, that's a very Western, that's the wrong way to look at the world. And that's the wrong way to look at our economy. How can we build an economy that's built to feed people, to care for people. We, we can't have an economy on a dead planet. Like, you can't measure an economy's fitness based on just profits and increases in GDP and increases in the price of oil on the international market. We need to measure our economy based on how many people have housing, how many people have education, how many people can pay for potatoes right now? How many people can pay, pay for rice? So that Western language is where we need to rethink how we understand our economy, and how we understand our world. So we're reframing how we talk about the economy, about workers, and about life itself. We want to build an economy that's built on life, on good work, on sustaining families, on caring for our children and our elders. Indigenous people know how to build economies that benefit their people and their communities and their nations. So I think we need to rely on Indigenous knowledges about economies to
2: to reframe how we view the world. At, at the risk of using <coughs> more colonial language, because I'm interested in what, what you would say about this, Um, Instead of socializing, wouldn't it be an alternative for government to end the direct and indirect subsidies to fossil fuel companies or increase the royalties and then leave them to survive on their own?
5: Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you know, the Trudeau government has made all sorts of nice promises um, in that regard, but yet, you know, have rolled out... Um, a brand new tax credit for carbon capture, utilization and storage, which is primarily going to benefit the oil industry. So it seems to me that, you know, the government is sort of hedging there. They're actually not um, interested in phasing out um, fossil fuels, they're not serious about it. Um, And yet they want to signal some sort of action on climate justice. And that's sort of the intervention that our, our book is trying to make is to say that, you know, the things that have been suggested by these governments and by um, the oil industry itself in terms of its future in the so-called low-carbon economy, um, they're not getting us anywhere near to where we need to be. And so it's time for um, doing something um, quite a bit more humane and uh, redistributive. And In the book, you write that a just
2: transition doesn't only help oil and gas workers, it helps support workers and the community more generally. Angel, what what type of support would you see government offering?
0: You know, I come from Alberta, where a lot of my family has worked in the oil industry, um, but they've also—I have family members that have left the oil industry and, and worked in other industries. Um, so I think a just transition should take into consideration those communities that are very dependent on a single industry, and I think. Uh, we need to also take into consideration that these workers also come from communities. There has been analysis that shows that if we invest in a care economy, um, it basically pays for itself. So if we invest in childcare, accessible, universal, affordable childcare, then that'll allow for more women and workers to participate in the labor market. Um, If we invest in publicly funded long-term care, which tends to provide better care than private for-profit care, if we invest in education from early education all the way to university level, then we can ensure that we have a more educated workforce and that those workers have greater agency in choice of work if they happen to lose a job in the future. So when we invest in these public services, we're ensuring that, you know, huge crashes in the economy aren't as drastic because we see when there are big drops in our economy, like in 2008, indigenous workers, racialized workers, low income workers were more greatly impacted. They're the first ones to lose work and they lose work for a longer period of time, and it takes them longer to rebound. So when I think about a just transition, I'm not just thinking about, you know, I'm not just thinking about resource workers. I'm thinking about the history of what's happened to workers in the past, and I'm also thinking of,
2: like, how we can improve things. We, we've heard that the federal government may be making this announcement related to upcoming le- legislation next month or certainly within this year, whether it's called Just Transition or Sustainable Jobs, Emily, I'm wondering what you're watching for in this announcement.
5: Yeah, well I think, you know, the opening um sound bites from uh the minister and Sonia Savage really um highlighted what's at stake here. Um and that is will fossil fuel phase out be part of be part of this? So will we be talking about a just transition or a phase out of fossil fuels? Or will we just be talking about, you know, um, incentives and carrots for um, sustainable jobs? And so not only that, I'm also looking for some of the things that Angel talked about, um, a focus not narrowly on fossil fuel workers, but more broadly on um, all sorts of workers and In our economies that are vulnerable in particular ways, ones that are vulnerable because of their position in extractive communities, even if not in extractive sectors, but also just, you know, some of those social supports that lift everybody's boats, I guess, across the economy.
2: I want to thank you both for a really interesting conversation, and I hope we'll have you back when we finally see what the substance of this legislation is, Angele. Alouk, Emily Eaton, thank you so much. Thanks thank thank so much for your time, Laura. Now, again, the book is called The End of This World. We'll continue to cover this topic, of course, in the coming weeks. And we want to hear from you. Are you employed in the oil and gas industry? Do you live in a community built around oil and gas? Or does your job support other people in the industry? Let us know. Email us at earth at cbc.ca. Mm-hmm. Now we've got time for a bit of news on the climate front this week. And let's start where we started the show this week, Under the Waves. France's Parliament has voted to ban deep sea mining. It's urging the government to adopt the change, and we know that President Emmanuel Macron has already spoken in favour of a ban. There are already companies hoping to mine so-called critical minerals in other areas of the world, including one company based in Vancouver. While the minerals can be used for EV batteries, there are worries that the activity could harm marine ecosystems and the ocean's CO2 storage capability. A new analysis of Canada's biggest pension funds shows they're not on track to divest from the fossil fuel industry. The report was put together by the charity Shift, which tracks pension plans and their impact on climate change. Overall, it says pension management needs to do more. But it did rate Quebec's Caisse du Dépôt near the top of the list, along with the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan and Ontario's University Pension Plan. And if you want to learn more about this topic, you can listen to our episode from April of 2021. Just search the episode title, Why Climate Change May Put Your Investments at Risk. And because we are in the depths of winter and we are a nation that embraces all that cold and snow and ice, there's something special happening that's tied to another earlier show we did. Saturday, January the 21st, is the first World Save Pond Hockey Day. It grew out of a group of pond hockey players in Finland worried about warmer winters, and the group includes Canadian Steve Baines.
1: Well, we hope to save save the world. That's what we're all about. But uh, realistically, we're, we're hoping to unite the hockey community all around the world against outdoor hockey's greatest threat, which is climate change.
2: Now, that's from an interview just over two years ago, and Steve is still fighting the fight one puck drop at a time. On the day, people organize outdoor hockey games and the hashtag in case you want to look at it on social media is Save Pond Hockey. If you want to know more about the push to preserve outdoor hockey in Canada, take a listen to our episode from December 2020. Just search the episode title, The Future of Winter, along with CBC What on Earth? And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Coming up on our show next week, we're talking about the ongoing drought in Somalia and the ripple effects here in Canada. Drought, exacerbated by climate change, is causing malnutrition and death for many in the nation. It's also playing a big part in the skyrocketing cost of living for many families as food and other necessities grow increasingly expensive. Somalis around the world often send remittances back home. But what happens when it isn't
5: enough? I also send money for my own paycheck and I group it together with those of my family members to send back home. Generally speaking, those remittances would be used for food, for water, electricity, for schooling costs as well. In the past, for example, if we were sending as a whole 100 to $150 US, that number has increased from around 300 to 350 USD as a family, just sending it back home.
2: That's Hibak Barsami. She's the project coordinator with Medenta Community Services in Toronto, which supports Somalis in Canada. Next week, we'll hear more about the impact of the drought on the Somali-Canadian community. And we'll speak to a climate activist in Somalia about what international organizations can do to alleviate that burden and get the money where it's needed to save lives and help Somalis adjust to a warmer world. That's all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Kiernan Green, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.